Twelve Byzantine Rulers by Lars Brownworth Episode 13, Basil II Welcome back. Last time we talked about Basil I and the rise of the magnificent Macedonian dynasty, which oversaw the Byzantine Renaissance and culminated with the reign of his great-great-grandson Basil II. The extraordinary thing about a line which achieved so much, however, was the fact that in the century between the death of the first Basil and the coronation of the second, not a single member of their family came anywhere near to the founder's military ability. His son and grandson were intelligent, cultured men who concentrated on intellectual pursuits, but had at best mixed results on the battlefield. His great-grandson spent most of his time enjoying life, never setting foot anywhere near a battle, and if he ever wore armor at all, it was purely ceremonial. Ironically enough, the military triumphs, which so characterized the dynasty, came from outside it. The problem was an old one, and one which Basil I was intimately familiar with. After all, he had come to the throne by murdering his predecessor and knew firsthand how a weak ruler provided an irresistible temptation to powerful generals. This had in fact been a problem throughout history, and his dynasty proved no exception. Of the seven emperors between Basil I and II, Three of them were generals who usurped the throne, in each case marrying into the family and controlling the state during the legitimate emperor's minority. But this turned out to be a benefit in disguise, as the infusion of new blood, proven as it was on the battlefield, allowed an almost unbroken string of military victories, which expanded the borders and gave the empire enormous international prestige. The first of the usurping generals had elbowed aside Basil's grandson and reconquered most of Armenia and parts of Syria, lands that had fallen 300 years before during the first wave of Muslim conquests. In doing so, he had effectively turned the tide on Islam. The empire was now the one expanding, the armies of the Prophet retreating. His own story, however, didn't have such a successful ending. Overthrown by his sons, he was tonsured and packed off to a monastery where he died in disgrace. With the general out of the way, the crown reverted to Basil's great-grandson Romanus II. Romanus, the father of the future Basil II, was 20 years old when he became emperor, and seemed to be destined for greatness. Tall, athletic, and immensely popular, it was hoped that he would carry Byzantine arms even farther than his predecessor. It soon became clear, however, that he was determined to spend as much time as possible enjoying himself, and leave the administration of the empire and the leadership of its armies to others. Whether or not he would have grown into the job and become emperor in fact as well as in name is an open question, as he died after a reign of only four years. Though short, however, it's worth remembering for two reasons, his wife and his generals. As a young man, he had convinced his father to let him choose his own spouse, and had picked an innkeeper's daughter named Theophano. She was, by all accounts, stunningly beautiful, completely amoral, and desperately ambitious. The marriage was a productive one. In the seven years they were married, they had at least three children, a daughter named Anna, and two sons, Basil and Constantine. Fortunately for the empire, while Romanus enjoyed married life, hunting, throwing lavish parties, and letting Theophano run the administration, two of the finest generals Byzantium ever produced, Nicephorus Phocus and John Smiskes, led its troops into battle. Nicephorus Phocus was unquestionably the most superb fighter of his day, the greatest general certainly since Heraclius, and perhaps even since Belisarius. The empire had been trying to reconquer Crete for well over a century, and in one brilliant campaign, Nicephorus stormed the island, restoring it to imperial control after 136 years of Muslim rule. This was only the beginning. The Arab ruler of Aleppo and Damascus, Saif ad had been raiding Byzantine territory every year for the past 20 years, 
and Nicephorus was determined to deal with them. In a single campaigning season, he captured over 55 walled cities and sacked the capital of Aleppo, earning the nickname White Death of the Saracens. Saif ad-Dula, who had only escaped the battle by scattering gold coins behind him as he fled, was so badly shaken that he never troubled the empire again. It was at this point that the Emperor Romanus died. Such was his wife's reputation that she was immediately suspected of poisoning him, and with her son Basil a mere six years old, it became apparent that she needed a protector. The obvious answer was Nicephorus, whose star could not have been brighter. And so, despite the fact that he was utterly devoid of charm and quite ugly to boot, the 22-year-old empress married the 51-year-old general. Officially, he was regent for her two sons, but it soon became clear that he intended to be the sole effective ruler. The first thing the new emperor did was to reform the army. He considered it his duty to drive the Arabs back to the desert waste they came from, and was determined to turn the military into a fighting machine capable of the task. When he was ready, he marched east, sweeping all before him. One by one, Tarsus, Cyprus, and Aleppo, all the major cities in Mesopotamia and Syria, fell until both had become provinces again. Then, in the sixth year, came the most spectacular victory of all. The city of Antioch was recovered. The third city of the Roman Empire, and the site of one of the five major patriarchates, it had fallen to the Muslims 332 years before during the reign of Heraclius. It should have been the crowning achievement of a wildly popular emperor, and yet the man who returned to Constantinople was pelted by stones from the rooftops and refuse in the streets, and was so unpopular that he had to barricade himself into the palace. The reason for this dramatic behavior was that Nicephorus, for all his gifts, cared only for the army. His foreign policy in the West was disastrous. He invited the Russians to invade Bulgaria, replacing a weak, benign ruler with a strong, ambitious one, and then thoughtlessly insulted the ambassadors of Otto, the Western Emperor. Worse still, he was completely disinterested in civilian affairs, levying heavy taxes to pay for his military, and squandering whatever support he gained by his victories. But most damaging of all, his wife was plotting against him. Theophano had become bored and taken his nephew John Smiskis as a lover. Nicephorus had banished him, but the beautiful empress easily got him recalled, and together with the chamberlain, an extraordinary eunuch named Basil, the three of them had planned the unpopular emperor's murder. They didn't have to wait long. On a cold, snowy December night, John and a group of men crept into the emperor's bedroom and brutally killed him. It was a daring coup, but if Theophano had thought that she would be able to manipulate the new emperor the way she had the old one, she had badly miscalculated. John's first action once he had been crowned was to send her into exile. Her young sons Basil and Constantine, now aged 12 and 10, were allowed to stay in the palace, but few must have spared them a thought or given them much of a chance of survival. But despite the brutality of his accession to power, John's reign would be one of Byzantium's most successful. Militarily, he was at least as successful as his predecessor, picking up where Nicephorus left off. He repelled a massive Russian invasion, and then invaded Bulgaria and expelled their Russian overlord, all while being preoccupied putting down a revolt by a rival general named Bardas Phocas. The Muslims had once again started attacking imperial territory, so the next five years of his reigns were devoted to the east. He pacified Armenia and swept into Mesopotamia, virtually unopposed. By now it was clear that the Abbasid Caliphate of Baghdad wasn't capable of resistance, and the emperor could have taken the city with little effort. Imagine the repercussions of that. But instead, he wheeled around and returned to Constantinople to deal with the religious controversy. 
The next year he returned to the east, conquering Palestine, Syria, and Lebanon, as well as all the major coastal cities except Tripoli. By that time his health was in serious decline, and when he returned to Constantinople, he died of poison or disease at age 51. With the death of the great general, Constantinople was thrown into chaos. Basil was 18 and technically old enough to rule, but by this time generals expected to become emperor. After all, the ancient tradition was to be acclaimed by the army and lifted up on their shields. What was the will of the palace compared to that? The last two emperors had brushed aside the legitimate Basil and been superb rulers. No general worth his salt would let an 18-year-old stand in his way. The Macedonian dynasty seemed destined to fade away like the Merovingian, replaced by the more energetic mayors of the palace, or perhaps become purely ceremonial like the Caliph of Baghdad. That it did neither, but instead reasserted itself, was due entirely to the relentless energy of Basil. He had three formidable obstacles to overcome. The first, and in many ways the most serious, was his chamberlain, a eunuch also named Basil, who had been running affairs since the Emperor John went on campaign and had no desire to step down now. The other two were generals, Bardas Phocas and Bardas Scleris. Bardas Phocas, a giant of a man, had rebelled against John Smiskies and consequently been exiled, but was still dangerous due to the large number of troops who were loyal to him. Bardas Scleris, the best and brightest of Smiskies generals, had by contrast always been fiercely loyal to John. Of the two of them, Scleris acted first. He had made his name during Smiskey's Russian campaign, and fully expected to be made emperor. When the popular uprising failed to happen, however, he tried to nudge events in the right direction by having his troops hail him as emperor, or Basileus. From there he captured the southern fleet and conquered all of Asia Minor, especially threatening since most of the empire's soldiers came from there. He advanced on Constantinople, set up his headquarters in the city of Nicaea, and began an amphibious siege of the capital. It was an unmitigated disaster from the start. The imperial fleet, loyal to the emperor, sailed out and once again using the invaluable Greek fire annihilated Scleris's fleet. The situation was improved, but the danger wasn't yet past. Scleris was still a better general than anyone the empire could throw at him, and his army was still intact. Even worse, from his position across the Golden Horn, he could harass to his heart's content and wait for low morale or a well-placed bribe to open the gates for him. In desperation, Basil the Chamberlain took a gamble. He entrusted the armies of the empire to the exiled Bardas Phocas. It was a calculated risk. Phocas, in his quest for the throne, would have to get rid of his rival general eventually. Why not now, with the empire's blessing? In any event, it worked. He escaped from his place of exile, raised an army, and the ensuing civil war lasted three years. Scleris was the better general and won most of the engagements, but Phocas always managed to save his army with an orderly retreat. Finally, with both sides tired of the struggle, the two armies met for the last time. Their final confrontation, complete with glittering captains and battlefield heroics, sounds more like a scene from the Iliad than an actual battle. Phocas, once again seeing the tide turn against him, offered to fight his rival in single combat to decide the war. Scleris, surprisingly given the fact that his rival was a considerably larger man, accepted, and in front of the assembled armies the two of them fought. It was over almost as soon as it began. Phocas deflected his rival's blow, struck back viciously, and Scleris fell to the ground, blood streaming from his head. The defeated general fled to the Saracens, his army disbanded, and the civil war was at last over. During the entire struggle, the Emperor Basil had played no part. He was not, however, just wasting his time. 
The throne was still unstable. Both rival generals remained very much alive and dangerous. Scleris may have been in exile, but it was only a matter of time before he tried again. And Phocas, whose loyalty was dubious at the best of times, was just waiting for an opportunity. So for the next six years, Basil was content to watch and learn as his chamberlain ran the government. He had much to learn. The eunuch was a far-sighted statesman who was responsible for the integrity of Basil's throne and for his political education. Unfortunately, he was also massively corrupt and completely dismissive of the young emperor, treating him like the child he no longer was. It wasn't the last time Basil would be underestimated, and it must have seemed like a bolt out of the blue when he struck, arresting and exiling the chamberlain, confiscating his property, and even stripping the great monastery he had built of all its possessions. Basil was at last free to act on his own. The people of Constantinople must have been surprised after 13 years to find him still on the throne. He had seemed like his father before him, an insignificant lightweight, and yet he had outmaneuvered and outlasted every claimant to the throne. Now that he was his own man, he would prove to be an emperor unlike any before or after him. Possessing boundless energy, he was nevertheless like a flow of lava, slow, relentless, and irresistible. Had he been anything less, he wouldn't have survived long, surrounded as he was both internally and externally by enemies. The first one to strike was Samuel, the Tsar of Bulgaria. The Bulgarian Empire had long been a thorn in Constantinople's side, constantly raiding imperial territory and then retreating into the wilds of the Balkans. Now seeing Byzantium's greatest generals fighting each other, Samuel struck, invading Thrace and selling the population of its major city into slavery. Then to add insult to injury, he took the city's holiest relic, the bones of its major saint, and carted them off to Bulgaria to be installed in his capital's cathedral. Such an insult had to be avenged. Basil assembled his army and invaded Bulgaria, marching through a narrow mountain pass called Trajan's Gate. He was only 28 years old and had never commanded an army before, but he seemed to have boundless self-confidence. Unfortunately, his army didn't share his conviction. The summer was unbearably hot, and Samuel cheerfully kept up a continual harassment without ever offering them a pitch battle. No wonder that after only three weeks they had had enough. Returning through Trajan's Gate, the wily Tsar struck, setting up an ambush which Basil walked straight into, nearly wiping out the Byzantine army. Deeply humiliated, Basil limped back to Constantinople, where, in what must have seemed like a hollow act of bravado, he swore revenge. For the moment, however, he had more immediate problems. Bardas Scleris, still in exile in Baghdad, became convinced that the time was right to make another bid for the throne. The caliph, always ready to sow chaos in a neighboring kingdom, armed him with men and money and sent him on his way. When he reached Asia Minor, Scleris found the nobility on the verge of revolt. To them, Basil had always been an unacceptable choice for emperor. They preferred one of their own, especially a general who had proved himself more capable than the disastrous Basil. Confident of victory, he advanced on Constantinople, where once again Bardas Phocas was sent out to stop him. This time, however, both men agreed to combine their forces and overthrow Basil. The only issue that remained unresolved was to decide which general would become emperor. Unfortunately for Scleris, the nobility made it clear that they preferred Phocas, and he, for his part, shrewdly offered to split the empire with his rival. Scleris accepted and was promptly arrested and thrown into prison as Phocas moved to claim the crown. Each day of his march through Asia Minor brought him more support. What chance did a weak, inexperienced emperor have against the empire's most competent general? None, it seemed, but Basil remained completely confident, 
even as an enemy set up camp across the Golden Horn in sight of the city walls. He had only a meager force of his own, certainly nothing in the face of Focus's numbers, so he had to look for allies abroad. The answer came in the form of Vladimir, the Prince of Kiev. Compared to the Greeks, the Scandinavian Rus were fearsome giants, Vikings wielding huge double axes and famous for their berserker rages. The prince, as it turned out, wanted a Byzantine bride, and Basil, knowing an opportunity when he saw one, promised the hand of his sister in return for 6,000 soldiers and Vladimir's conversion to orthodoxy. His sister Anna may be forgiven for being unwilling. Her future husband already had four wives and 800 concubines, and was notorious for his philandering. But Basil was insistent, and she dutifully went. The prince accepted, and the moment the soldiers called Varangians arrived, Basil slipped across the water at nightfall and attacked at first light. The rebels were taken completely by surprise. While the imperial navy sprayed Greek fire on those unlucky enough to be by the shore, the Varangians butchered everyone else. Phocas himself wasn't there. He was at Nicaea with his reserves, and his mood could hardly have been made better by Basil's subsequent actions. The emperor was not in a forgiving mood. Leaving the rebels no doubt as to what their fate would be if they continued to resist, he hung, crucified, and impaled their captive officers. Phocas's reputation was dented, but he wasn't beaten yet. The emperor still hadn't faced him on a level playing field, and he was confident of his odds. A few months later, he was ready, and the two armies faced each other on even ground. Basil's initial charge almost broke the rebels, but Phocas somehow regrouped his men. The emperor rode back and forth along his lines, holding a portrait of the Virgin Mary in one hand and his sword in the other, shouting encouragement to his men. Phocas, seeing the battle turning against him, once again challenged his opponent to single combat. Basil was a conspicuous target, and both armies watched in amazement as Phocas mounted his horse and charged. If Basil felt any fear as the massive general bore down on him, he didn't show it, and in any event, it hardly mattered. With both armies watching, Phocas collapsed, crumpled from his horse, and died of a stroke before ever reaching the emperor. There could hardly have been a clearer sign of divine judgment. The rebels fled in panic and were mercilessly cut down. The Scandinavians had so impressed Basil that he decided to use them as his personal bodyguard, and he organized them into what would become the famous Varangian Guard. They would faithfully serve the empire for the next 300 years and become legendary both for their fierce battle axes and their loyalty to the throne, though not necessarily the occupant. The most famous member was undoubtedly Harald Hardrada, last of the Vikings and brother of St. Olaf, who after getting rich in Byzantine service returned home, became king of Norway, and invaded England, dying at the hands of Harald, the last Saxon king at the Battle of Stamford Bridge in 1066. One final act was left to play. With her husband dead, Phocas's wife released Bardas Scleris to raise an army and continue the rebellion. But Scleris was no longer the man he had been. Almost completely blind, he was too old and he knew it. After a few months of token resistance, he came to terms with an uncharacteristically generous Basil and retired to an imperial estate. He was 31 years old and had been on the throne for 29 of them, but had remarkably little to show it. For the first 27 years, he was little more than a puppet, and once he had achieved independence, his first major military engagement had ended in disaster at Trajan's Gate. Even the heavens seemed to be against him. A massive earthquake had destroyed numerous churches in the city and even split the central dome of the Hagia Sophia. But Basil was not a man to be concerned with such things. He still possessed his boundless self-confidence, 
and recent events hadn't blunted his desire to avenge Trajan's gate. He had hardly settled the civil war before he had set off for Bulgaria. His first stop was Thessalonica, where he tracked down a monk who had been present at his baptism and got his blessing, along with a promise to pray for him every night for the duration of the campaign. It was an impressive offer, especially since the campaign would last for over three decades. But Basil, confident of divine favor, entered Bulgaria. The Tsar Samuel was not unduly concerned. He had met and defeated Basil before, and if things happened to go badly, he could always retreat with his army into the inhospitable fastness of the mountains. But Basil was not like other men, and the army he made was not like any other army. Trajan's gate had taught him well, and he would never walk into an ambush again. For him, discipline and order were the keys to success. There were to be no individual heroics, no gallant daring charges, no gambles or attacks until victory was certain. There were instead endless drills and inspections, and a methodical advance, winter or summer, snow or rain, equally impervious to cold or heat. The army was to be an extension of Basil himself, like a flow of molten lava, slow, relentless, and absolutely irresistible. The price of this type of conquest was that it was incredibly slow, and Samuel knew that though he couldn't stand up to the imperial army in the field, the empire was a large place. He simply had to hide in the mountains until events called the emperor away. Then he would descend on the Byzantines and annihilate whichever poor general Basil left in charge. It wasn't a bad strategy, and he got his chance in the fourth year of the war. The Fatimid Caliphate had invaded Syria and attacked Antioch. By the time Basil got word, the great city was close to surrender, and realizing the desperateness of the situation, the emperor immediately left for the east. For someone renowned for his glacial pace, he moved with blinding speed. His army numbered 40,000 and had to travel 600 miles, a journey of at least three months. Knowing that every moment could prove decisive, he came up with a novel solution. He mounted his entire army, giving each man two mules, one to ride and one to carry their equipment. Riding at breakneck speed, not waiting for stragglers, he reached the walls of Antioch in 16 days. The Fatimid army, taken completely by surprise and caught between the walls of the city and the relieving forces, were cut to pieces. Basil paused long enough to replace the governor of Antioch, telling him to keep the Arabs in check by demonstrating his strength in yearly raids, and then left for Constantinople. His victorious army could not fail to impress, and the local Anatolian aristocracy, anxious to prove their loyalty, whined and dined him, throwing lavish parties on a scale he could hardly have matched. For the soldier emperor who ate with his troops, changed his clothes sparingly, and hated empty ceremony, this was the worst possible thing they could have done. The aristocracy had been a thorn in the imperial side for a long time, and the recent civil war had driven home the point that they had become overpowerful. It was a thoughtful emperor who arrived in Constantinople, and he acted with his usual deliberateness. He abolished the traditional patrician land privileges, reducing many rich families to poverty, and giving the peasants of Asia Minor, the backbone of the army, access once again to their ancestral lands. With one fell swoop, he had broken aristocratic power and provided the empire with a wealth of recruits. Meanwhile, his absence in Bulgaria allowed Samuel to regain the offensive. The Tsar invaded Greece, raiding as far south as Corinth, and then turned and conquered much of modern Albania and Bosnia. Basil, faced with an expanded war, once again induced a foreign power to do his work for him. He invited Venice to invade the Dalmatian coast in the name of the empire, solving two problems at once. 
the Byzantine cities were protected and Samuel was faced with a two-front war. The Venetians, eager to use the vast forests to provide much-needed wood for their navy, invaded Dalmatia and held it for the empire. Basil set to work again, slowly and methodically conquering Bulgaria, when yet another Fatimid invasion of Syria recalled him to the east. Hurrying with his customary speed, and one suspects seriously annoyed, he smashed the Muslim army so effectively that they hastily arranged for a ten-year peace. With his borders at last secure, he returned to Constantinople to prepare for the final push into Bulgaria. He was greeted in the capital by a unique envoy, a party of senior officials of the Western Emperor Otto III, the Holy Roman Emperor, who was born of a Greek mother and had dreams of reuniting the two halves of the Roman Empire. He had sent for a royal bride. Basil couldn't pass up an opportunity this good, and he sent his niece Zoe. Had the marriage taken place, then the throne of Byzantium would perhaps have fallen to her on Basil's death. The East and West would be reunited, and subsequent history would have been much different. Unfortunately, however, when Zoe arrived at the imperial court, it was to find Otto III dead and the entire court in mourning. Regardless, for Basil it was yet another diplomatic coup, and he set off for Bulgaria in a buoyant mood. Samuel was by now fighting a guerrilla war that seemed increasingly useless against an imperial army that could move through the mountains as fast as he could, and seemed to shrug off bad weather and harassing attacks alike. In four years Basil had conquered the eastern half of the Balkan Peninsula, and Samuel had now to worry about internal dissent as the Byzantines took more and more of his territory. Even after all this time, Basil felt no inclination to increase his pace or change his tactics. He was a patient man, and he was not about to deviate from what had brought him such success. It wasn't until the 25th year of the war that the decisive battle was fought. Samuel, desperate now, staked everything on one final battle in a narrow ravine called Symbolongus. He filled the valley blocking Basil's progress, waiting for the emperor's advance. Like the Battle of Thermopylae over a thousand years before, Basil found a small path around the Bulgarian lines. He slipped a company of men along the path, then attacked from both sides. It was a rout from the beginning. In the chaos, Samuel was able to escape, but virtually no one else would follow him. For Basil, it was the greatest victory of the war. His enemy was completely broken, and he had over 14,000 prisoners. He had always been a vindictive man, and it was here that he acquired the nickname of the Bulgar Slayer, by which he is known to history. Wanting to break the will of those still intending to resist, he ordered the eyes to be put out of all 14,000 captives. One out of every hundred was to have a single eye spared, by which they could lead their compatriots back to the Tsar. When the pathetic group shuffled into Samuel's presence, he collapsed in shock, dying two days later a broken man. His kingdom survived him for four years, but after Symbolongus, the outcome was never in doubt. Finally, in 1018, they formally submitted, and Basil entered into the gates of their capital. It had been a lifetime of struggle. He was 28 at the start, and was now 60. He had been relentless in his pursuit, and had ground down all resistance. Bulgaria became part of the empire, where it would remain for almost 200 years. If the Bulgarian people expected continued harsh treatment from the Bulgar Slayer, they were pleasantly surprised. They were now citizens of the empire and to be given every possible assistance. Taxes were kept low, local leaders were kept in place, and the aristocracy were given high imperial offices. By and large it worked. The vast majority welcomed peace and settled down under a relatively light Byzantine yoke. 
Basil traveled the new province, accepting formal surrenders and announcing imperial policy. He ended in Athens, where he attended a service in the Church of the Mother of God, better known as the Parthenon. One last victory awaited him as he returned home. His reputation was immense, and without even the threat of invasion, he convinced an Armenian king to bequeath his kingdom to the empire. He returned to the capital city as a conquering hero, who had expanded the empire more than any emperor since Heraclius, and created an army second to none. Most men would have been content to rest on their laurels. After all, he was nearly 65 in an age when life expectancy was 33, and had accomplished more than anyone could have hoped at the start. But Basil had never been like other men. Still full of boundless energy, he looked for a new challenge, finding the perfect outlet in Italy. The southern part of the peninsula had been inundated with Norman and Lombard invaders, and while he had been busy in Bulgaria, his generals in Italy had been busy driving them out. Now they suggested an invasion of Sicily, an important island reconquered by Belisarius in the 6th century that had fallen to the Muslims in the 9th. Basil gathered a huge army and threw himself into planning, but the invasion never took place. He fell ill, and on December 15th, 1025, at 3 in the afternoon, he died in the great palace of Constantinople. He had been an emperor like no other. His iron will was stronger than that of any other occupant of the throne, and everything was subordinated to his single-minded purpose. He had devoted everything to the greater good of the empire, giving up any attempt at personal happiness. A womanizer in his youth, when he assumed full control of the empire, he led an austere remote life, remaining a bachelor, and so far as we can tell, never spending a moment thinking about a possible wife or mistress. In an age which demanded pageantry and pomp to set emperors apart, he hated the trappings of power, dressing in simple clothes, eating a soldier's rations, and slashing the imperial staff. And yet, for all that, he effortlessly dominated the empire, bending aristocrats, patriarchs, and foreign princes to his will. Other emperors had found it increasingly hard to deal with the squabbling of overpowerful nobles. Basil simply broke them in one sustained attack, revolutionizing the economic, political, and social structure of Anatolia. He lacked any hint of glamour or charisma. There was no trace of the heroic about him. And yet, by force of will alone, he became a brilliant general, earning the trust, if not the love, of his soldiers. In fact, love seems never to have concerned him at all. There is no record of lovers, favorites, or even friends, only the single-minded pursuit of efficiency in service of the empire. He was one of the empire's greatest emperors, but surely also one of the loneliest. With him, the magnificent Macedonian dynasty reached its greatest extent, and had anyone half as capable followed him, its prosperity would have been ensured. But he left no children or heirs, just his worthless brother and his successors squandered the inheritance, neglecting the army and managing in only 46 years to engineer such a disastrous defeat that the empire never recovered. Looking back, it seemed as if an age had ended with his death. Norwich said it best. He died on the 15th of December. By the 16th, the decline had already begun. Join me next time as I talk about the emperor who had to pick up all the pieces and save the empire from complete collapse, Alexius Comnenus, who appealed to the West for help and got instead the Crusades. Twelve Byzantine Rulers is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth, author of the book Lost to the West, The Forgotten Byzantine Empire That Rescued Western Civilization. 
Look for Lost to the West on Amazon.com or at your local bookstore. Visit us at 12byzantinerulers.com.